Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. Thomas Aquinas took much of the direction of his work on virtue from his understanding of Aristotle. But Aquinas had some challenges or advantages that Aristotle did not. Aquinas had Augustine as an important predecessor. And in Augustine, we confront an extraordinary thinker who was already intellectually and psychologically mature before a conversion experience altered his understanding of good and bad in human life fairly dramatically. If you're accustomed to Aristotle's ethics, you're accustomed to this idea that either you're properly brought up or you're deeply unfortunate. (laughs) Um, So you've got somebody here who's properly brought up and undergoes this dramatic change. That's a huge, huge shift from Aristotle. I like using Augustine because he looks like somebody who might have been in the constituency for Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. I mean, he is this kind of upright, bright sort of individual uh, man. Now, although Aquinas recognizes the importance of childhood moral education in the cultivation of virtue, he can't hold that things are going to be pretty well set for us by the time we're young adults. In addition, the cast of variously morally exemplary figures available to Aquinas included a great many saints who were neither especially privileged nor especially intellectually inclined. Very few were the cherished sons of undeniably noble men. Think about any of the disciples, for example. Not like Aristotle's guys at all. Finally, Aquinas' understanding of our nature was such that even an adult human being with a full complement of acquired virtues was likely to err sometimes and likely to have reason to regret some of the things that he did or failed to do, said or failed to say, and thought or failed to think. This is not the kind of thing you think about the phronomos if you're reading the Nicomachean Ethics. It's really hard to picture the phronomos needing confession. Um, The business of cultivating good character was, in Aquinas' view, ongoing and never entirely completed in an individual human lifetime. In all these respects, Aquinas' understanding of virtue comes closer to some aspects of contemporary understandings of the challenge of the ethical than did Aristotle's. 
Now, Aquinas' work on virtue is of a piece with his theology, and this is part of the reason that he has received less attention than Aristotle from those studying virtue outside the confines of specifically Christian intellectual work. But Aquinas' understanding of what a virtue is and what a virtue does is helpful even if we do not share his faith. And his work on the nature and structure of the virtues takes us beyond what we have in Aristotle, even though Aristotle's work provides much of the material from which Aquinas develops his understanding. Now, as a starting point for considering Aquinas' approach to virtue, consider the phrase darkened intellect, disturbed passions, and disordered will. <laughs> as a description of how things are for human beings generally, um, for some, the phrase has theological significance and points to the fall from grace. For others who occasionally read the newspaper, watch television, or lament the things that friends, family members, neighbors, civic leaders, or other people get up to, the phrase may be no more than a concise description of our lot. Now, it's often hard for us to direct our energies toward long-term lasting good when doing so would prevent us from pursuing more immediate gains, or toward the common good when that looks to be at odds with private advantage. That is a way of summarizing the trouble not just when we lie, cheat, steal, or commit acts like murder, rape, fraud, or torture on however grand a scale, but also in a thousand small occasions when we're impatient, selfish, moody, dishonest, ungenerous, or foolish. Now, don't focus on the breathtaking commonality of bad judgment, bad responses, bad habits, and bad deeds. Focus instead on the extraordinary fact that perfectly ordinary people know better. We may not put this knowledge to good use. We may not seek to improve our own characters and actions, but we know better. And because we know better, we also know to be struck by our fellows' patience, kindness, justice, honesty, and courage. Given that one can notice the descriptive accuracy of the phrase, darkened intellect, disturbed passions, and disordered will, Without adverting to revealed knowledge about God's acts, the fact that we know better should be striking. And I think people generally do know better. My students admit that they know better. Um, and I'm at a big secular place like this. Assuming, as seems possible, that none of us has much experience with an entirely well-governed human being, we should be at least as struck by the fact that we know better, as we are by the fact that we fall short. For Aquinas, cultivation of virtue helps to remedy disorder in our lives. And even though very few of us will develop harmonious, reasonable, practical orientations directed at good with or without discipline and training, Aquinas, like Aristotle, 
takes it that we are nevertheless drawn that way. Fundamentally, we seek to pursue good and avoid bad, which is why we have it in us to work to improve ourselves in the first place. Um, my anecdotal, uh, we're philosophers, we don't have data, we have anecdotes. Um, my anecdotal support for this idea that people in general are pursuing good but, uh, and avoiding bad comes from conversations with admitting nurses in state psychiatric hospitals um, in five states, who I just happened to know because of connections through various other places. Um, and I asked them about this idea, thinking that uh, a lot of times they meet people for the first time who've been brought into them by police. <laughs> for doing things that are very disturbing to other people. Um, and they all kind of agreed with Aquinas and Augustine on this point. They all said, look, um, if you can't understand the sense in which what this person is doing was, from their perspective, better than the alternatives, you have no idea what you're looking at. And you're not in a good position to extend a healing hand to the person in question. Now, of course, you can give them drugs and make them stop doing what disturbs you. <laughs> that's easy. But that's kind of like knocking them upside the head with a two-by-four from the inside. It's not necessarily a healing practice. You have to see why this was better than the alternative, why this was good, or a way of avoiding something very bad and dangerous in order to understand them in a way that allows you to help them recover or come to function. Okay. Now, Aquinas thinks that he takes from Aristotle an account of four acquired virtues as principal virtues. He doesn't, he gets it from Ambrose, but it's okay. It's not like these aren't mentioned. Practical wisdom or prudentia, justice, courage, and temperance. Aquinas spells out in some detail why these are cardinal virtues and how we need all of them to act well without impeding ourselves. Following Aristotle broadly, Aquinas takes it that a virtue brings the full and appropriate actualization of a human power, one that allows for both the sort of upward inclination of passions and appetite toward reason and the downward governance of passion and appetite by reason actualized in overall pursuit of the good. Like that's the picture. That's the way we want to be oriented. <laughs> okay. Michael Pakalip puts the point this way. Quote, a virtue is a trait that makes someone such that his activity, what he does, what he's responsible for, is reasonable. But there are four basic types of such activity. His thinking itself as practical and directed at action, his actions, ordinarily so-called, and how he is affected. This last category splits into two. Aquinas thinks on the grounds Sorry, on the grounds that acting reasonably in the realm of passions 
involves regulating both the passions by which we are drawn to something and the passions by which we are repulsed from something. Those are two, or, that you've got two sorts of tasks or achievements for virtue, okay? Which the ordinary distinction between the virtues of temperance and courage confirms, close quote. Aquinas' account of virtue relies heavily on these points, some of which are drawn from Aristotle. Aristotle's work is broadly consistent with treating practical wisdom, prudentia, as the virtue responsible for sound practical thinking and judgment. It is a virtue of the intellect directed to the will. Justice, for Aquinas, is a virtue of the will directed at extramental actions, primarily those that concern giving each his due. Jean Porter underscores this point and urges taking it in its full, that we take it in its full generality. Quote, as a virtue of the will, justice is the only cardinal virtue which directly concerns the distinctively human capacity for rational desire. Moreover, it is the cardinal virtue directly concerned with external actions. And as such, it includes most of the norms of non-maleficence and respect for others." Close quote. As Pakaluk noted, temperance and courage are virtues of passions. Temperance renders attractions to desirable things reasonable, and courage is charged with reasonable aversion, principally with controlling our fear so that we can be appropriately steadfast. Crudely, then, prudence corrects for darkened intellect in the practical sphere, temperance and courage for disturbed passion, and justice for a disordered will. Aquinas thinks that what he takes from Aristotle, that he takes from Aristotle an understanding of practical wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage as the four cardinal principal virtues, all of which must be cultivated if one is to lead a good human life. So far, so good? Okay. Now, contemporary virtue theorists recognize many virtues that play no part in Aristotle's work. Hope, for example, and humility and gratitude. For Aquinas, hope as a virtue belongs among those strengths of character that are divinely infused. So I'm going to leave hope to the side for the moment. Not just because I read the paper, but <laughs> sorry. Um, so it, because it's divinely infused. Humility and gratitude, however, can count as acquired secondary virtues in Aquinas. Secondary virtues are annexed to cardinal virtues to fortify and assist the operation of the cardinal virtues. All acquired virtues, cardinal and secondary, have their source in our efforts to build good character. Their object is the proper order of human mentality and action, and their end is a good individual human life, and any quality that counts as a virtue, acquired or infused, counts because it tends to perfect our powers. Where perfecting a power is a matter of strengthening, 
in a way that allows it to work in coordination with other powers toward good. Um, yeah, okay. For Aquinas, all of the cardinal virtue, all of the acquired virtues, cardinal and secondary, enable their bearer to participate effectively and appropriately in pursuit of common good. This is how Aquinas takes up Aristotle's point that acquired virtues are political, the, the common good as the setting for all of it. Unsurprisingly, Aquinas treats gratitude as properly annexed to justice. The virtue that we name humility involves aspects of justice that Aquinas treats under the headings religion, piety, and respectfulness for those in authority. As is true for hope in Aquinas and for any acquired virtue on this scheme, gratitude and humility may also be treated as virtues that go beyond anything we can conjure on our own through discipline and training and beyond a strength directed to a good life for an individual human being or a small society of human beings. They may be treated as virtues whose objects and aims invo involve goods that are beyond temporal happiness. Such are the infused virtues in Aquinas. Hope is an infused virtue for Aquinas. It comes from God with God as its object and beatitude as its end. All of the acquired cardinal virtues have infused counterparts in Aquinas' scheme. This aspect of Aquinas' thought has been um, the subject of tremendous scholarly attention and controversy, um, even among scholars who are really friendly to Aquinas in general. That's over like at least the last 15 years. Now, I agree with those who argue that infused virtues are indispensable for Aquinas. Given the object, source, and end of infused virtues, non-theist moral philosophy can't simply adopt Aquinas' work on that topic. You can't do it. Now, Aquinas has several ways of distinguishing between habits that tend to foster coordination of our powers in pursuit of human good. He notices isolated dispositions to good actions that need not be connected with each other. Such dispositions, good qualities that are not connected in the way that proper virtues are. You can, I mean, so... You can be disposed in a way that's aligned with one of the major acquired virtues without getting all the way to the acquired virtue. Okay. You could think about the difference between a strength training regime that results in like especially powerful targeted muscle groups without tending to produce overall bodily health and strength. Isolated dispositions to good action are like bulging biceps in an otherwise weak body. Proper virtue, however, those virtues are connected in ways that tend to overall strength of character, that is, to coordinated and cooperative powers working harmoniously to guide the pursuit of human good. 
And I mean, he really does take on Aristotle's thought about habituation as necessary to acquire virtue. Um, you get the acquired virtue by doing the kind of characteristic act associated with it. Um, and that means for the very young that what you're initially doing is sort of imitating the virtues of your elders and betters, okay? So you're sort of borrowing your father's justice, right? And trying to figure out how your dad would respond to something tough in an effort to cultivate justice. Um, it's a little tricky with Aristotelian courage. <laughs> Because you're not going to be thrown into the battlefield in defense of the city and face death and come back, you know, better and stronger guy. Um, that's not the way you get little kids trained up in courage. Um, but if we move aside from Aristotle for a second and just think about courage in the more general form of like reasonable aversion, right, and reasonable steadfastness. You can see it at work in lots of areas of human life. And you can see lots of places where you could help children learn to stand up to some kinds of fears and cultivate others, <laughs> right? Because both are required for the virtue. Is that clear? Um, and temperance and you know moderation generally you can teach children these things, partly by being temperate yourself. That's always a really good way. It's like the best way to teach a kid honesty is by being honest, modeling it for them. Um, but we've got all kinds of ways of working with just, justice for children, around things like sharing, around things like helping them cultivate empathy, um, questions like, how would you feel if he did that to you? Those kinds of things are really, are, and my own feeling is that really little kids pick up justice really fast. Like, um, that's not fair is a complaint you can hear from the very young, right? And they actually have some sense of the thing that's supposedly not fair. Um, and it's really helpful if you've got a child complaining that something's not fair to actually ask about the kind of unfairness involved and like what a fair way would look like and stuff if you're not you know just sort of ground into the dirt by the child demanding that something be made fair, fair that isn't um, but those are there's all kinds of ways that you can help young people cultivate these virtues um, and if you're a nice Thomist, all, hope is not lost if you reach even my age and find yourself, you know, immoderate, cowardly, and so on. I mean, I really hope I'm not unjust. I'm, injustice would be a really hard one to try to deal with if you made it to my age without, like, oh, you know, I don't know if I did that ever. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but... Um, so, but in acquired more virtues are governed by and inclined to be governed by prudence or practical wisdom. Now, 
there's these famous Aristotelian commonplaces which Aquinas accepts about how you sort of need to have prudence in order to have any of the moral virtues, and you need the moral virtues in order to have prudence. Various scholars handle this apparent perplexity in various ways. One of my favorite scholars likes to handle it by taking it that what's involved here is just pointing out that every one of the acquired virtues has an intellectual aspect. And the intellect being what the intellect is, it's unsurprising that the intellectual aspects work together in the acquired virtues. And if you are in any doubt about the way in which various aspects of your being want to be reasonable, imagine a thing which may not happen to any of you, but I confess happens to me, where you have an inappropriate response to something in your world, right? You're like um, super annoyed over a tiny thing or you're feeling completely anxious about something that's not at all threatening, right? Or um, you're just massively, massively drawn to something that you think, you know, really? <laughs> not really. <laughs> that's actually a bad idea, right? Um, I confess that I have these kinds of problems, and the thing I could do with this explosion of emotion and feeling and all that kind of stuff is give myself a talking to. And if these things were as somehow immune to reason as people sometimes pretend they are, giving yourself a talking to should have no good effect, right? It's like trying to talk yourself out of the flu or something. There's this completely <laughs> irrational explosion from within that's about to sort of leak out and mess up everything. Um, you, you know, a, a giving yourself a talking to is not helpful when you're, what, what you need to do is vomit. But it is really helpful if what you need to do is calm the heck down <laughs> and step back and have a second thought. Okay. So far, so good. Um, so acquired virtues are equipping us to act from and in accordance with appropriate standards governing reasonable pursuit of temporal good under the circumstances we face in light of the particular skills and such that we bring to the challenge of leading good lives. Now, Aquinas further distinguished acquired from infused virtue by pointing to the different rules governing human action at issue in the operations of the two sorts of virtues. So this is Angela Noble on this topic, quote, Whereas Aquinas' first distinction has to do with whether or not virtue brings man into conformity with a rule, his second concern is with which standard of action the virtue brings man into conformity, with which one. Virtue can either bring man into conformity with the rule of action that is, that's governed by right reason, 
or it can bring man into conformity with a higher rule, the rule that's in accordance with God's will. The two rules correspond to the distinction between infused and acquired virtue. Aquinas consistently bases the distinction between infused and acquired virtue on the fact that man needs different virtues insofar as he is brought into conformity with different rules or standards of action. The virtues that perfect man in a manner commensurate with his created nature are acquired virtue, while those that bring man into conformity with the will of God must be infused by God. Only the latter, Aquinas states, are the virtues that are simply perfect, right? The former are perfect only in a sense, insofar as they bring man into conformity, the good commensurate to his nature. Okay, so Noble is saying, look, the ones that make it possible for me to lead an individually okay life and be right with the rest of you, those are the ones that are just in accordance with my nature. The ones that help me become, adapt myself more to God's will, those are the infused virtues. Um, okay. Is the distinction clear? I'm going to try to make it a little clearer. Um, I mean, as, as Denny Bradley once put it, Aquinas, Aquinas has a twofold understanding of human good. There is the good at issue in non-accidentally sound production and reproduction of human social life. That's the good at issue in acquired virtue. Production and reproduction, both individually and writ large. Then there is the good made possible by grace through salvation, the eternal good of union with God in a resurrected life. Through the joint operation of acquired and infused virtue, the acquired virtues are, as it were, sort of elevated by contributing to directing individuals to temporal good while keeping their eyes fixed on the highest good possible one only made possible for us by the grace of God. In this sense, God's love, caritas, unites all of our powers and efforts by orienting them to the highest good there is for human beings. Okay. An admittedly inadequate pedestrian example might help here. Um, consider a man who volunteers a lot of his time working with at-risk children in his community. And suppose that he works from cultivated justice, temperance, courage, and a measure of practical wisdom. He sees the children as his fellow human beings and has deep convictions about the importance of helping our fellow human beings make their way in the world, especially when they are struggling with very difficult circumstances. And when the children are difficult, uh, as children often are, he draws on reserves of patience and understanding 
of the things that can make it hard to work with, to work with children through in tough circumstances, to get them through even when he knows full well that it's highly unlikely that all of his charges will have good, solid, productive lives, no matter what he does with them or for them. So our man's acquired virtue enables his work. Suppose now that our man is a Christian and not only has cultivated good character, but faith, hope, and God's love that jointly combine his good, imbue his good character with a sort of transcendent focus and direction. He and the children are fellow creatures. Every human being he meets is a person for whom Christ died. Through prayer, communal sacramental practices, and the like, he comes to see the children he helps as people given into his care by God and sense that these are eternal beings that he owes them not just the kind of respect owed to all human beings as such, but the subtle shift of respect for the dignity that comes of an appreciation of the sanctity of human life. His hopes for his charge, charges is infused hope, not just a kind of optimism that some of them might beat the odds and have good lives. He seeks guidance in prayer, and even though he may, in some sense, do many of the same things that any virtuous person might do for the children under the circumstances, he sees his work with the children as expressive of his faith and answerable to a very high standard, a standard that none of us could meet without significant help from God. And something of the state of his own soul is at risk in his work with the children. He needs to be especially honest, open to correction, fair, wise, and so on, because this work has the character of something like a vocation. Is the distinction clear? Is the stupid example somehow helpful? Okay. And it's, between, um, so you've got basically a good guy who works with at-risk kids. And you could have a good guy who works with at-risk kids, and it happens to have the acquired cardinal virtues and some reserves of like extra patience, understanding, and experience with kids to draw on in his work. And he really wants to help these kids beat the odds and have good lives and be good people. Okay. Good guy number two does a whole lot of the same things that good guy number one does. It's just that from the point of view of good guy number two, these are children of God that God has somehow put in his care. And it's his responsibility to honor and respect the sanctity of these lives as children of God, right? As individuals for whom Christ died, as, you know, put your favorite descriptor of any human being in there from a Christian perspective. Um, and this sets a really high standard for interaction with the kids. Now, um, guy number one, if he encounters problems dealing with the kids, he will likely ask other people who are dealing with the kids or who know about dealing with kids 
or who live in the neighborhood or something for advice or counsel to help them get over whatever the hump is, right? And maybe just to help them come to keep from getting burnout because it can be a lot of work working with at-risk kids in a sufficiently difficult situation, right? Guy number two prays about it. He's really trying to actually function as a vessel of God's love for these kids. And that is just a slight, he might do exactly the same things in some sense that guy number one does. But his hope for these kids is deeply related to his faith. Um, and it's not like I don't think guy number two can burn out guy number two can burn out too right but um, he might seek spiritual advice if he feels that happening or look for a spiritual advisor or ask people to pray for him or with him or bring it up in service on the in his church something like that um or even enlist the aid of other members of his group to help with the kids with this idea that we're all trying to do, be on the side of the angels for these kids. That's what we want here. Right? So let's figure out how best to do that. Um, I was, it was just an attempt at a pedestrian example of how you could have what looked from the outside like exactly the same behavior happening in these two wonderful guys you would love to have show up in your neighborhood if you live on the south side of Chicago. Um, and it's just their inner understanding and orientation to the work they're doing with the children is different. Okay. Given Aquinas' understanding of the operation, aim, and source of infused virtue, it's difficult to bring Aquinas' discussion of infused virtue into contact with contemporary non-theist virtue ethics. But I suspect that one aspect of even non-theist contemporary virtue ethics where you might begin to get something like this is in contemporary virtue theorists who insists that everything, things need to be oriented to a transcendent good of some kind. They may have different ways of describing what the transcendent good is. It might be the health of the planet. It might be the health of society. It might be real social justice instead of what goes under the banner, whatever it is. But there will be some transcendent ideal where they're seeing the virtues as enabling us to participate in the right sort of way in whatever that transcendent thing is. And that would be one place where some work in contemporary Anglophone virtue ethics could actually draw something from Aquinas' discussion of infused virtue. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. 
Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.